When it comes to bioscience, Arizona has an edge. From genetics and the study of diseases to testing out so-called miracle drugs, or pushing the boundaries of how spicy, or not, a chili pepper can be, and increasingly, scientists are turning to real people, like you and me, to help gather data. And that new information can yield interesting results, both amazing. And sometimes alarming. It is this quest for more information that has led Valley 101 to join up with the lab for a second season on bioscience. Our reporting will take you across the state to answer bioscience questions, big and small. In each episode. You'll find out how the answers affect real people, scientists or not. Part one: Desert Icon. Part one: Desert Icon. When you think of Arizona, what comes to mind? Sprawling deserts or urban sprawl? The Grand Canyon, or the stark beauty of Monument Valley. Hollywood has painted our state as a wild, uncivilized frontier filled with dangers and adventure. What is your name? Like the land I'm from, Arizona. Arizona. What else? Cold. Arizona cold. Fine state. Fine pistol. Rugged landscapes are split by sharp mountains, and dotted with scraggly brush, and the sentinel of the desert, the saguaro cactus. Welcome to Valley 101, in conjunction with our bioscience podcast, The Lab, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm Kaylee Monahan. Producer and your host for today. In this episode, we're going to explore the most famous symbol of Arizona and why it grows here. They are icons of the Sonoran Desert. You see them everywhere, from emoji icons to T-shirts, keychains, and coffee mugs. You can find representations of them all over the world, but they only grow here, in the Sonoran Desert. The mighty saguaro, 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 saguaro cactus. Okay, so the name might be a bit of a mouthful for those outside the Southwest, but let's turn to the Merriam-Webster dictionary for a pronunciation. Surely they can tell us how it's said. Saguaro. Wait a minute, saguaro? That's not right either. But what's in a name, anyways? A lot, actually. The term saguaro comes to us from Mexican Spanish, but it's not exactly a Spanish word. Some etymologists believe it might have originated from upata, an Uteco-Aztecan language of Sonora, Mexico. Others say it may have come from the Yaqui. 
who are also part of the Uto-Aztecan language family. The term saguaro was first recorded in 1856, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. But what makes the saguaro unique goes beyond its name and its classic silhouette. It defines Arizona in a way few other symbols can. But why do they only grow here in our desert? The question sent me on a journey to Saguaro National Park outside of Tucson. I am Andy L. Fisher. Andy is the Chief Officer of Interpretation and Public Information, and she has been at Saguaro National Park for 10 years. Which is kind of unusual for a park ranger. Andy studied forestry as well as education. She now combines the two in her current position at the park. She was the perfect person to talk to about our question. Why do saguaros grow in the Sonoran Desert versus like growing in the Mojave Desert? Yeah, there's actually a really good explanation for that. Okay, so you're aware that North America has four different major desert systems. So Mojave is to the west of us in California. The um, Chihuahuan is to the east of us in Texas. And the north of us, we see the Great Basin Desert. North of us is too cold. Saguaros don't like freezing temperatures. They aren't going to grow up there. Over in the west... They get winter rain season. So when the cold fronts come through, they get those nice, gentle winter rains, and that's awesome. The saguaros need that. Over on the east side of us in Texas, they get those crashing, booming monsoon storms, and that's their primary water source. Well, saguaros also need that. So it turns out that the Sonoran Desert is the only geographic location that gets both the winter rains and the summer rains, and it's that bimodal rainfall that the saguaros need to thrive here in the Sonoran Desert, as well as not being so cold as the as north of us. It turns out the saguaro is uniquely adapted to its desert home. Everything from its roots to its skin is perfectly tailored to life in the Sonoran Desert. Ben Wilder has been the director of the University of Arizona's Desert Laboratory on Tumamac Hill since 2016. As a desert ecologist and botanist, he is an expert on what grows in our region. To understand why saguaros are unique to the Sonoran Desert, Ben said we must first understand what defines their habitat. So the Sonoran Desert is a region of biological unity that surrounds the Gulf of California. And so that includes pretty much the entirety of the Baja California Peninsula, kind of the just the bottom part of California and then as you get into the um, you know the western side of Arizona so you have the tip ahead of the Gulf of California and then the majority of so obviously southern Arizona and then the majority of Sonora itself the connection between the sea the Gulf of California and the land uh, is really again largely defines the Sonoran Desert um, but within that you have really interesting gradients gradients in seasonality of rainfall, uh, and gradients in amount of rainfall, and gradients of marine influence. So the saguaro is a much more of a terrestrial, continental species that uh, its habitat does not go in most of its range to the shores of the Gulf of California, nor does it occur in Baja California. So the saguaro cactus is very particular about where it lays down roots. And, speaking of roots, the saguaro has a shallow but wide root network. 
snaking outwards in the hunt for water rather than burrowing deep into the earth. In addition to widening its reach, the length of the roots help keep the cactus stable as it grows. Ben says the saguaro's roots are often as wide as the cactus is tall, thus creating a firm base to stabilize its towering height. The roots of the saguaro aren't their only adaptation. If you grew up in Arizona like I did, you may have learned that saguaros breathe very, very slowly. It is one of the neatest things about desert plants, especially cactus. This is Andy again. So all plants take in oxygen and they release carbon dioxide just like you and I do, but they also take in carbon dioxide and they use that to build the sugars in their leaves and create structure. So they're not only taking in the gases um, that we know that they take in, they're also respiring uh, just like you and I do. Most plants do that gas exchange in their leaves. As you look around the Sonoran Desert, most of the plants around here have very, very, very tiny leaves. And mostly that is to make sure that when they open their leaves up to do that gas exchange, they're not losing a lot of moisture. During the day, the cactus keeps its cells tightly closed so no moisture can escape. Then at night, they reopen and bring in as much carbon dioxide as they can until the sun rises. This means that photosynthesis only happens for as long as their carbon dioxide supply lasts. Once it's gone, the cactus will essentially stop growing. You can think of it like a factory. The machinery can only run for as long as there's energy. After that, the lights turn off. So it's a very slow growth pattern, but it really keeps them from losing that moisture that if they had opened up during the day in the sun, it would be a lot harder for them to do that. So they've just taken that next step and just really elevated their game for holding their breath all day to make sure they don't lose moisture. This method of photosynthesizing, along with all the saguaro's unique adaptations, allows it to survive the extreme climate of the Sonoran Desert, from scorching summers to chilly winters. But I still had questions. Why do saguaros grow arms? How long can they live? Why do they grow tall and skinny instead of load to the ground with pads like a prickly pear. For that last question, it turns out it all has to do with sunscreen. Sort of. Here's U of A's Ben Wilder again. So when the sun is at its max, the solar max of the day, right above, you're like a pencil, and you're avoiding the direct rays coming down on you, and so that's why, that's the main ad adaptive advantage. The cacti's spines also provide a form of sunshade, too. Over the millennia of their evolution, cacti converted their leaves, which can easily lose moisture in the desert, into thick, fibrous spines. 
As for the arms, they begin to grow once the cactus is able to reproduce. So the the saguaro can live upper ends are just around 200, just a little bit above 200 years old. The way they grow through time is they, you know, they're tiny itty bitty little seedlings that you can't even really see unless you're looking really hard for them until they're several years old. Um, and then they grow relatively fast uh, and they don't start putting on their first arms until on average about 30 years of age, which is just about the time they start to become reproductive as well. At that point, their upward growth starts to slow as they're putting more resources into putting more arms on, which increases their reproductive capacity. So the flowers are born on, the, in general, the tips of the arms. And so the more arm branches there are, the more flowering capacity there is, the more seeds you can produce, and the higher your reproductive capacity is. And once those arms are pretty established, then upward growth resumes and uh, much faster than that kind of 50-year interim was putting on arms. And then that's when you get the behemoths, the really wonderful individuals that are big arms, really tall. In my search for saguaro answers, I also turned to Dr. Martin Wojciechowski, an evolutionary biologist at Arizona State University, and his specialty is plants he had a rather unexpected answer to why saguaros only grow in the Sonoran Desert. That's actually a very good question. So this is one of those sort of circular uh, solutions, okay? Originally, the Sonoran Desert was defined largely by the distribution of saguaro. So, you know, it, it, it isn't like, why do you only find saguaros in the Sonoran Desert? It's because that's the way the Sonoran Desert was mapped. Dr. Martin has spent years studying the fossil record of Arizona's plant species and piecing together the botanical evolution of our desert. We've estimated that, you know, saguaro might have diverged from its closest relative, you know, its, its sister species, you know, maybe a million years ago or maybe a couple million years ago. What it did in those first 900,000 or 900,050 years, I don't know. But it, you know, it, it, it's clear that because most of the sister species are in central and southern Mexico, that that lineage started somewhere in central or southern Mexico and has been migrating, evolving, adapting, you know, as it's moved north. Another cool thing about Dr. Martin is that he is one of the scientists involved in decoding the saguaro's genome in 2017. The primary plant that we use as our source of material to extract DNA was up on Tumamac Hill in Tucson. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a protected area. It's a research laboratory there. And we sampled it in 2014. Ben Wilder showed me that very saguaro. So here, this is what was identified as SGP5, Saguaro Genome Project 5. Um, a towering, beautiful individual. It uh, toppled over um, not long after it was sampled. I, I don't think the two are related. I just think it was at, towards the end of its life mm. because the sampling is pretty um, non-intrusive. But you can see that kind of whitish, powdery you know, remains of the body. A once soaring saguaro that stood on the crest of Tumamak Hill. The giant now lays flat 
like a deflated balloon. The once waxy green skin is gone, and nothing is left but the skeletal remains, its woody ribs bleached by the sun. So this decomposed relatively fast, but for about the six months just after the fall, this turns into an oasis for insects especially. It's incredible, the decomposition. There's a whole set of fruit flies of um, Cactophilic drosophila that evolved specifically for the habitat that's created by fallen cacti. And speaking of an oasis, saguaros provide a very important resource for Arizona's wildlife. Here's Tracy McCarthy, avian monitoring coordinator for Arizona Game and Fish. Yeah, I think probably every animal in some way that lives in the Sonoran Desert depends on the saguaro, at least in some aspect of their, of their life cycle. The gilded flicker, gila woodpecker, house finches, western screech owl, an elf owl, an American kestrel, which is a little small falcon, a great horned owl, or a common raven. There's a desert species of purple martin, which is a kind of a swallow, red-tailed hawks, Harris's hawks, and crested caracaras. But you also see birds like that bald eagle that nested in that saguaro for the first time that we've recorded. The other couple of species that really depend on are not bird species, but mammal species. Two of our nectivorous bats, the lesser long-nosed bat and the Mexican long-tongued bat. But it also is hugely important to Sonoran Desert species for it, the, the flowers and the, the actual fruit that it produces. In fact, the fruit typically is ripe in like June or July, and it's the only water source often available to a lot of species in the desert before the monsoons start. So it's, you know, really important to a lot of species in the desert during that time frame. Humans have also relied heavily on the saguaro, not only as a rich resource of food and supplies, but as a timekeeper too. Native peoples have found numerous ways to take advantage of the short but rich bounty of the desert. Here's U of A's Ben Wilder again. The flowering and then the fruiting of the saguaro marks the uh, new year uh, and, the, and it defines the months in the summer uh, for the autumn. Yeah among many, many, many. Uh, so our knowledge of these plants is honestly quite shallow uh, and very shallow related to the Tanatam and other indigenous nations, um, especially on this landscape who have interacted with these very plants through multiple generations of saguaros. Our understanding um, is just, just beginning and, and, and really pales in comparison to peoples that have lived here for so long. But saguaro experts like Ben say that Arizona's icon is under threat. Changes in weather patterns have caused rainfall to be unpredictable. Invasive species such as buffelgrass and stinknet have devoured habitat where baby saguaros grow. 
And these species also bring wildfires where they never once burned. Young babies is not there because they're overcrowded, overshaded, overcompeted by the grass. And then the, they can be killed when a fire comes through and then the grass returns and the cacti do not. Urban expansion is also threatening the saguaro's survival. As cities sprawl ever further into the desert, the habitat that the saguaro survives on shrinks. Combine that with the invasive grasses, and you have a dire loss of saguaro land. And finally, drought. One would not think that these perfectly desert-adapted giants could suffer from less rain. But if more dry summers like 2020 happen, and the seasonal rains continue to be unpredictable, the saguaro's future will become uncertain. So these extreme droughts and the extreme heat temperature, and like just the periods of 115 degrees for 20 days straight, or you know, August that have 105 degree temperatures or more, or very warm Octobers, or you know, really any period of time you have such extreme temperatures, there's just this kind of lingering question of where is the threshold? These species are arid adapted. They are resilient to the booms and busts of the desert, but what is too much? And that's an outstanding question and one that we're actively looking at here on, and, and pretty much all of the people you're speaking to in their own way are all studying that. And the Soro is actually an incredible model organism to understand just that. So to return to our initial question, why do saguaros only grow in the Sonoran Desert? It is because the Sonoran Desert is the only desert that has the right conditions for saguaros to survive, unlike the other major deserts in our country. Over thousands of years, the extreme climate of the Sonoran Desert allowed only the hardiest of cactus genes to endure. And their adaptation means the saguaro we know today has a toolbox of traits that make it a master of survival. And not only are they magnificent survivors, but they provide shelter, food, and resources for desert dwellers. And for those of us lucky enough to live in Arizona, they stand guard over our yards, hiking trails, and mountains. I had one more question for Ben before I left Tucson. Okay. Is there anything you want to add? Something I didn't ask and I should have? Oh man, <laughs> like you said, we could talk about this forever. Um, they're incredible plants. One of the things I've been, so been talking about Soros a lot recently, it's been great. The people are interested, they care about the Soros. They are the icon of, of our region. And I really feel that they have so much to teach us, uh, that we need to listen, observe, respect, and learn. But it's Andy Fisher from Saguaro National Park who really sums up the allure of the saguaro cactus. I think one of the things that I have learned living out west now for the last, you know, 25 years or so. No matter where you go in the American West, you can go into a gift store, you can go into a bookstore, you can just walk down the street of any major tourist town. You look in the windows and you're gonna see saguaro cactus everywhere. They are so 
iconic to the American West that even in places like Moab, Utah, where I've worked, you go into a gift shop, you see saguaro cactus. We're 500 miles from the nearest saguaro cactus in Moab, Utah. But it still is that representation of what the American West is. Um, and I love the fact that people are so attached to this iconic plant species. But if you want to see one, you got to come here. And not necessarily specifically to the Saguaro National Park, but we certainly have some here. But southern Arizona or points down in Mexico are the only places that this iconic American species live. Part 2. Citizen Scientists and the Saguaro. Based on the latest outlook from the Climate Prediction Center, there's a slight tilt towards below normal on precipitation between the months of July and September, which is basically the heart of the monsoon season. This is Gabriel Lojero, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in Phoenix. However, having said this, there is still a 65% chance that precipitation could be near to above normal. That's good news for all of us, including the saguaros. In terms of what can cause the monsoon season to be drier than normal will have to do with how the high-pressure system that usually tends to migrate north during the summer into the Four Corners region of the United States, where is that high pressure going to set up? Because... The farther north it sets up, you're going to get more favorable windfall that will bring in moisture here into, the, into Arizona, which will help with the thunderstorm activity. However, if that high pressure system like sets up further south than usual, then you get caught off from that moisture source. And so you're going to have more drier days and less thunderstorm activity. That's what happened in 2020 when many saguaros fell over. Also, as a side note for the weather nerds, there is no such thing as a non-soon. Most people tend to associate monsoon with thunderstorms, but that's not correct. The monsoon season is, is a season, like the hurricane season that we see in the Atlantic Basin, which runs from June 1st to November 30th, as well as in the Eastern Pacific. Um, the monsoon season runs from June 15th to September 30th. It's not just only rain and thunderstorms that encompass the, the monsoon season. Also, we have to take into account the extreme heat as well as the wildfires. 
My name is Tania Hernandez. I work as a research scientist in a desert botanical garden. I caught up with Tanya on Zoom. She's been with the botanical gardens for three years now. But I've been working with the cactus family for a long time. <laughs> My PhD dissertation was an evolutionary study of the cactus family. And this was a while ago. <laughs> she earned her degree in Mexico City, which, in many regards, is one of the best places to study cacti in the world. Yeah, Mexico is the diversity center of cactus of the cactus family. So it's a place on Earth where you can find more species than anywhere else in the world. I called her up to find out more about the Saguaro Census project that the gardens officiate. But first, I asked how the Saguaro cacti in Metro Phoenix were doing since 2020. Surprisingly, the majority of Saguaros are doing well in the city. People assess that they are in general in a good condition. So that is uplifting. Perhaps it's not too surprising. Gabriel at the National Weather Service said, that 2021 was the seventh wettest monsoon season on record. And 2022 was close behind at the ninth wettest. According to a report by Saguaro National Park, their count of saguaros show that the plant's population is healthy. Since 1990, the number of saguaros has nearly doubled, from an estimated 1.15 million individuals in 1990 to 2 million in 2020. While there is no statewide effort to count all the saguaros, individual parks and organizations like the Desert Botanical Gardens are making efforts to not only count the cacti, but to also monitor their growth and health. Last year, we got 8,000. That's 8,000 individuals within Metro Phoenix for 2022. As of this podcast's airing, the numbers for 2023 are still being tallied. But why count saguaros at all? Well, turns out we know very little about these iconic plants. This is a very long-lived species, and it's very hard for us to study such a long-lived species because you need to monitor over your lifespan, probably uh, generations. So most of the information we have is anecdotal. That means not scientifically validated. Unlike trees that have growth rings, Saguaros don't have obvious ways of showing the years they lived. As for that myth about being 100 years old before they grow their first arm, it really just depends on where that saguaro's growing and how much nutrients and water it gets. So it's not a good measurement of how old the plant might be. But scientists are looking at different ways to find out how old saguaro cactuses are. 
There's some research done here at the garden where scientists are trying to estimate the age by the spines and the chemical composition of the spines. Tanya also says that the botanical gardens are trying to uncover any genetic differences between the wild and urban saguaros. And this is where the saguaro census and people like you and me come in. The saguaro census is just a part of a big initiative, a big project that seeks an understanding uh, how saguaros in the city are coping with heat and drought stress. In order to study how city saguaros are doing, you first need to know how many there are. And you want to be able to monitor their growth. Naively, we call this a water census because we thought we were going to be capable of counting every single saguaro in the city. <laughs> we clearly overestimated our capabilities because Phoenix Valley is huge, it's enormous. But people have been really interested in this project and the community has helped us a lot. This help comes in the form of counting the saguaros you see and recording them in an app called iNaturalist. It's free. I highly recommend. And the app does more than just allow for recording saguaros. First thing you are going to see is a map, and you can see what plants and animals have people observed around you. It is interesting because anybody can use it uh, for any plant or animal. So say you're walking in a park and there's a lake. And you see a bunch of ducks and other waterfowl. You could take a picture of the birds you see, note the location, and describe them. You might not have no idea what you're observing, but... There's many people and many specialists enrolled in the iNaturalist project, and they are going to check your observation, provide you with a name. They're going to explain you what you're watching. Okay, back to Saguaros. And typing in iNaturalist. Oh, there it is. First hit. iNaturalist. Connect with nature. Download. Now, within the iNaturalist, we assembled a project that you are going to find under the Metropolitan Phoenix Saguaro Census Project. Okay, it says iNaturalist, explore and connect with nature. And it looks like it's brought to us by the California Academy of Sciences and National Geographic. All right, swipe. It says observe... Swiping again, identify, and discuss. And then the app, iNaturalist, says it'll automatically generate suggestions based on your photo and location. So I guess that's species suggestions. And then discuss. Uh, so you share your observation with the community to discuss and confirm your findings. And then contribute. 
Your observation may be vetted as research grade and shared with scientists working to better understand and protect nature. Very cool. Okay, so need to sign up here. Once you've registered and joined the Metro Phoenix Saguaro Census Project, you can see where other people have made sightings. You can also see where there are gaps in information. If we can uh, invite people to help us, the project is open the whole year. You can contribute with your observations anytime. If you open the map within the iNaturalist and you see the saguaros that have been counted and have been observed, you are going to see that there's some areas in the Phoenix Valley that we have no observations. And we are asking people to concentrate on those. And if you happen to drive by those areas, work by those areas, or just pass by those areas and you find a saguaro, please take a picture and report it on iNaturalist. It doesn't have to be a good picture. It doesn't have to be close. Some of them, for example, I take from my car. Not driving, of course, if somebody else is driving. I happen to see a saguaro passing by. I take a blurry picture and I send it to the iNaturalist. And that helps a lot. One bad picture observation is better than no observation at all. So please help us. Okay. Once the app is up and running on your smartphone, you can start providing that help by answering the question prompts. How tall do you think it is? Does it look healthy? If it has damage, what kind of damage? Is it getting watered regularly? And a couple of other questions that really, really help us better understand the distribution and the demographics of the saguaros in the valley. While the month of May is the main counting season for the gardens, Tanya says you can count and observe cacti all year long. After all, the more data received, the more we can learn about these very special plants. A next step in the saguaro project is to assemble a saguaro seed bank. And we want to bring the seeds of those plants, those saguaros that are living naturally under warmer, drier conditions. And the idea is to propagate them here in the garden and give them under adoption. So if you are interested, you are going to be able to adopt a saguaro from us and you're going to know the genetics of this saguaro. And we hope that it is better adapted for the future conditions that we're going to face in the valley. Now, before you start calling the botanical gardens, these infant saguaros are not yet ready to be homed. Think of them in their neonatal fostering stage. For those keeping track, mark your calendars for 2027. Hopefully, by then you can adopt your own little saguaro to take care of. Thank you to all the experts who shared their knowledge in this episode. If you have more questions about saguaros or the desert plants in your yard, you can contact the Desert Botanical Gardens helpline at planthotline at dbg, for desert botanical gardens, dot org.
Next time on the lab. And, and so then, as I got older, I started growing seed blocks for the breeder Philvia from Ortega, and everybody knows the Ortega brand. Next week, we're taking a bite into Arizona's chili industry and discovering it's not all about the heat. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Lab in conjunction with Valley 101. This episode was researched, edited, and produced by me, Kaylee Monahan. Special thanks to all the experts who lent their time and expertise to this episode. Editorial help from Kathy Tulamello, Sean McKinnon, and Amanda Luberto. Audio oversight is also by Amanda Luberto, and web production is by Karen Kurtz. Today's musical scoring came from Universal Production Music. You can support all of our podcasts by subscribing to them on your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. It really helps us grow and also reach more listeners like you. And if you liked this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at A Z C Podcast. The Lab and Valley 101 are Arizona Republic and A Z Central dot com productions. The Lab is supported by a grant from the Flynn Foundation. I'm Kaylee Monahan. Thanks so much for listening. Then we'll see you next week. Music